everyone, and thank you for joining me. I'm Tracy Harris, and this is At Home in My Head, the podcast that explores life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Last episode, I talked about a project to incorporate different marginalized community members into a single unity panel to talk about their experiences of oppression. The conversation included information on experiences that were alike, but also different. It shed light on how groups as well as individuals can experience oppression in different ways and how it can elicit different responses. This episode includes part two of that conversation, and I'd like to start out by addressing two points in the introduction before we dig in. First, I'd like you to imagine a car accident. A driver, a passenger in the front, and one passenger in the back are hit by a large vehicle that has, through negligence, driven across the median into their lane and hit them head-on. Imagine the driver of the larger vehicle is unharmed and emerges from their vehicle to assess the damage. The driver of the smaller car is bleeding badly from his leg and unconscious. The front passenger is alert and talking and complaining of wrist pain. The passenger in the back seems unharmed. Some of us would be inclined to rush to the aid of the person bleeding to start applying pressure as we enlist others around us to begin calling 911. This is known as triage, assessing who is harmed the most and administering aid based on the order of necessity. Surprisingly, though, I often see people who claim the person who is unconscious and bleeding is overreacting because the person in the back seat was in the same accident and is clearly unharmed. If the accident didn't harm everyone... To them, it means it can't really have harmed anyone, and the person unconscious and bleeding needs to grow a thicker skin. According to some, the reason that this person is hurt is their own weakness, and not that I drove into them head-on. It's not what I did that's harmed them. It's their own oversensitivity. They were just looking for some reason to bleed out. This brings me to my next point, which is something called the eggshell skull rule. In short, it states... The unexpected frailty of an injured person is not a valid defense to the seriousness of any injury caused to them. The first time I encountered this rule was when I was on jury duty. The lawyer who explained it said it meant that a criminal takes their victims as they find them, but it doesn't have to be in the context of a crime. Negligence works just as well. When I do things that cause harm, I don't get to say, I didn't mean to mug someone with a heart condition. Or that when I texted while driving, I wasn't intending to kill anybody. I can't point to the passenger who isn't injured to say that anyone should have survived the accident I'm responsible for unscathed. Within a community, there will be many contexts. People like to say that oppressed communities are not homogenous. And that's true. They aren't. And sometimes this can confuse people when it comes to which voices to listen to within the community. If I'm part of the dominant culture and I want to support the community and some people are saying that a particular situation is not harmful and others are saying it is harmful, where should I turn my attention? For me, the answer continues to be that we need to turn our attention to those who are facing the worst of the damage of the oppression, to the person bleeding out and unconscious. It doesn't mean we're denying that the person in the back seat wasn't harmed we still respect their experience of that accident was one of not being harmed. But that in no way negates the damage done to the person with lethal injuries. The same event can devastate some and leave others whole and intact. 
It may be where they were situated when the event occurred, or it may be that someone had a heart condition. But when a society decides to oppress an entire demographic for the benefit of others, we take our victims as we find them, and we are responsible for any and all resulting damages. Reasonable triage means that we apply our support for marginalized communities where it's most needed, to those most harmed as the priority. People who say they don't see it as harmful are okay, and they don't need us to tend to them at this time. They exist, their experience is valid, but it's not the homogenous voice of the community. And those who are injured are also not the homogenous voice of the community. But they are the most relevant voices if our goal is community support and aid. And with that, let's look at part two of the Unity Panel, which focuses on how to be a better ally by avoiding decentering and fragility. Most people, including allies, don't care about trans people until they learn about how it impacts them. Which is why I make arguments that are inclusive of how this impacts all of us, too. It impacts all women. We're doing some projects at work. So I'm on this steering committee, and I'm trying to get some information. The part that I'm working on is messaging. So I'm sitting with some friends that I would met at the Austin Capitol, and they're kind of giving me some advice, and I'm feeding back into the steering committee that will be releasing this thing in the next couple of months. The lady I'm talking to, her fiancé is a trans guy, and they're like, well, it's almost a lot of times kind of a poison pill if you add the trans thing to it. To her point was, if you advocate for the least of us, then we all win. And I agree with that wholeheartedly. Trying to control the messaging around something at work means that I have to leave out how something impacts me and my community and the people around me. And I think it's good that we're also arguing for how it affects people with disabilities and people with different religious beliefs. We're constantly asked to leave ourselves out of the conversation. Be quiet. We've been asked to be quiet for a long time. First, it was, hey, let's get gay and lesbian rights and then let's get all of these things and then we'll slowly... I've had people like, why are y'all so loud about this thing? It's like, well, I've been quiet for a long time. But the things that allies can do better, it's exhausting to have to constantly be arguing for everyone else just to get yourself some amount of human decency. If you advocate for everyone, we all win. The truth is that, like, for example, in feminism, Mm -hmm. we push really, really hard and a lot of women of color were left out of that. So advancing women didn't really advance them. It advanced white women. When we push for advancement that advances everyone, it always advances the dominant culture more. Yeah. So it just pushes the dominant culture even further, and it leaves the marginalized person usually with less. So unless you have targeted focus on the specific issues of that group of people that needs that leverage and needs that help, it really does more good for the people that don't usually need it. When we advocate for the least of us, I agree all of us benefit. So if I advocate for trans women as a cis woman, I definitely advance my own rights by helping you. But if I advocate for myself, it doesn't necessarily trickle down to help you. It is sad that I or anybody would need to see how it benefits me or what's in it for me in order to help somebody that is hurting more than I am. 
but I understand what you're saying that some people actually need that as a catalyst. It's not enough for them to see somebody bleeding on the street. They have to understand how leaving that person bleeding can be a problem socially and impact them. It's not enough to just want to help the person that's bleeding. But when we do advance for trans women, it really advances all the bodily autonomy rights that then go on to support all women. But I do see that when I look out just for my own rights as a woman that is privileged with my cis status and my white status, when I just advocate for things that impact me, it doesn't necessarily help all women. It doesn't necessarily trickle down to trans women or women of color. Because even my friends, my allies, praised that aspect. Here's how it feels to me. I'm just going to be a little vulnerable. You get kind of praised for that. And I feel like there's people still making it about themselves and that how it impacts me doesn't matter. Folks who are outside of your community who want to be supportive sometimes end up centering themselves in ways that are probably not helpful. There's a quote that I really like, and I've used this in talking to a few different groups, including my work. I don't need allies. I need accomplices. I like that. The accomplice is someone that you do the thing with, you do the crime with, someone that you have a shared risk in the venture with. You take on their own risk. If you're the driver, you take on the risk of you may not have been the person who robbed the bank, but you take on the risk just because you're the driver. We all benefit from working together and for advocating with each other. And why can't we all get what we need from society? Why do we have to fight over the scraps? Everyone is familiar with the failings. It's a battle formation. Your shield covers you and covers the person next to you like a scale. They overlap. It's a unified front of everyone overlapping, protecting each other. I was involved in the atheist community from the mid-2000s, probably around 2013, 2014, was when I started pulling away a little bit. I finally just cut ties with any remaining groups, 2017, 2018. My first involvement was message boards and stuff online in the early 2000s. When I first got involved, it was really heartening because I come out of conservative Christianity and there was so much queer phobia and racism. I wasn't well enough educated to really recognize all of that stuff for what it was at the time, but I definitely was frustrated with how difficult it was to be involved in a church and how they would treat the queer people in other groups. As I got more involved with these groups, I started to see average rank and file people. You'd make friends with them and then all of a sudden they would say something super far right wing or super homophobic thing and you just be like what is happening and this is not what i joined to be a part of right around the time i met megan my wife i was involved with a local atheist group in phoenix where we lived at the time they had like a hiking group and would meet up at pubs and things like that but i was hanging out with a group and there was a, a guy who had showed up i'd never seen him at one of the events before we were just sitting around having a conversation you know how people group off when there's 10 or 20 people in a group. He was having a conversation with another group that was sitting next to us. I wasn't really paying attention to their conversation. And all of a sudden I hear this guy go, well, I'm a white separatist. And I went, what? And me and my wife, she's my fiance at the time, but we both just looked over and we were like, did he just say that out loud in a public place? Things like that that would happen that would make me go, hmm. I'm not sure I want to be a part of this group, especially because the the reaction of the people running the group should have been, get the hell out of here. I wasn't in charge of the organization. 
didn't feel like it was my place to say anything, but I was kind of like, why the hell are they not kicking this guy out? The things I actually noticed the most often weren't openly horrible bigots. It was usually the people in the organizations that would say that they were allies, but were not very good at being allies. The fights that I had over and over again with people going, stop criticizing me for this. I meant well. I didn't mean any harm by that. Okay, if you didn't mean any harm by that, you should want to know why it actually did harm so that you can not do it again. The I meant well excuse was just a way of trying to shut down the conversation and not hear anything so they can just go on and keep doing what they want to do and not have anyone tell them that they're wrong to do it. Right. So in other words, they're saying, you need to hear me that that wasn't intended to be harmful. The end. Instead of saying that they want to hear from you how something that wasn't intended to be harmful actually did harm. I know what I intended, but how was it actually received and why was it problematic for you? That lack of curiosity and that lack of wanting to be educated into a higher level of cultural sensitivity. How can I better predict in the future whether what I'm saying is going to be hurtful or not if I'm not willing to listen to you and I have no curiosity whatsoever about what's harmful to people like you? More and more, I started to hear, why are you making enemies out of people who agree with you 90% of the time? So simply noting that something was hurtful was you making an enemy. It started to feel so much like when conservatives go, well, you just call anyone who disagrees with you a bigot. I'm like, okay, you agree with me 90% of the time. Let's talk about this 10% because you might not think it's important, but I do. During the 2016 election, after Trump had won, hearing these atheists go, Trump won because you can't shut up about this. If liberals would just let these issues go, they could get more. And it's like, so I'm supposed to let the one party that is sort of halfway supportive of my identity utterly stop supporting me and throw me under the bus so that it can win elections? If we have to give up all of this stuff to win the election, what's the point of winning the election? What's the point of the Democrats winning an election if they're still going to treat trans people just as badly as the Republicans are treating us? It struck me how quickly they were willing to throw trans people under the bus to get what they wanted. One of the things that strikes me is the story of the Wizard of Oz. What I find interesting about that story is that what you have are people who are, for one reason or another, experiencing problems in their life because of things that they need. Dorothy needs to go home, the scarecrow needs a brain, the tin man needs a heart, the lion needs courage, and all of these people are lacking in something that they're hoping to get help with. And as Dorothy travels along and and her friends that she picks up along the way, they all start picking each other up and saying, you know what, I got your back on this. We're on our way to see the wizard. We're going to get these things that we need. Why don't you come with us and we'll all get what we need? Instead of attacking each other or saying, well, why are you making your brain an issue? I just need to get back to Kansas. And can we just focus on that for a bit? And you just put this brain thing aside, Scarecrow? Instead, she says, I have a need and you have a need. So why don't we go get these needs taken care of? They all support each other. When Dorothy gets kidnapped, they don't say, too bad for Dorothy, that sucks. 
let's take Toto and keep on with the task of getting the witch's broom and too bad for Dorothy. They all put themselves on the line and they go and rescue Dorothy and get her out of there. And then when the wizard is really abusive and bullying toward the lion, Dorothy stands up to him to his face and tells him that he's being a bully and that he's being really horrible. And why are you treating this person who comes to you for help? Why are you treating them like crap? When she puts herself out there, the wizard could have come back and said, screw all of you. I'm not granting any of these requests. Goodbye. Why should I help you if you're going to behave like that? It was kind of a weird thing with society. We've got this minority that's in power. And then we've got this majority of marginalized people that are out there that need things, that aren't getting their needs met, that aren't being treated like fully human beings, who don't have the same access to the same rights that other people are just born with. They're coming to the wizard one at a time. The scarecrow is saying, I need a brain, and Dorothy's saying, I need to go home. But they're not really cohesively working together and unionized in a way that is making that collective power what it needs to be. If we had that kind of cohesion, I'm not saying it's easy. A lot of times people are so resource stressed that they don't have anything left to try to give to somebody else or to try to help somebody else. The people like me who maybe have more privilege and less oppression need to start putting ourselves out a little bit more and backing everybody. I understand if you're the person that's dealing with homelessness I can't ask you to stand up and put yourself at more risk to help a bunch of other people. You're dealing with something that is enough. But for everybody who does have that capacity, we need to stop telling people, put your trans issues aside, put your women's issues aside, put your non-white issues and racist issues aside. We need to start really having each other's backs. And the people like myself who have the resource to do that, we need to quit shutting people down who are hurting more than we are, and we need to actually start picking people up and dragging them with us to the wizard and not just standing there and asking for help, but demanding the rights, demanding the respect and making it work. That to me is such a better vision of what it should be and what you're describing when somebody tells you if we bring your issue with us to the wizard, it puts all our issues at risk and we need to quit thinking that way. We really need to start realizing that all of us have issues when we're not treated like a human being and when we're denied the same respect. And I don't even mean legislated legal rights. I just mean demanding respect. When Harper is at a restaurant and needs to go to the bathroom, that there will be 10 people that will stand up and say, I'll go to the bathroom with you and make sure that you're safe. We need to be a team. If you end up feeling like being gaslit, these communities, you'd have these people say, I'm an ally, and then like demand friendship, demand the label, treat me like I'm an ally because I've said I'm an ally. But then they they didn't do anything. I'll just say that I'm an ally, and then well, that's done. Problem solved. It would come up so many times. Somebody in the community would say something or do something, and you'd go, "What you're saying or doing is not good. It's harming some group." You don't have the people in the comment section coming in atheists who are like fans of whoever you were talking about go that person's an ally don't you know that person's an ally here's a clip of that person saying they're an ally on this podcast six months ago or whatever and i understand that this person says that they want to be an ally if they actually want to be an ally then they should want to hear from people who are members of that group when they tell them hey what you're doing is hurting us 
but instead they'll wield that label ally like a weapon to shut down any criticism of them every time they say or do something that ends up causing problems for us. It was so frustrating to watch that happen over and over and over again in the community. And eventually it just got to the point where it was like, well, these people don't want to hear from me. These people don't want to hear from a trans person or a black person or a queer person telling them, here's what we need, because their response is always going to be, didn't you know I'm already an ally? I don't need to do anything or change anything about myself because I'm already an ally. One of the first black activist groups I took part in about 20 years ago, it shocked me because I came out of a white community. Especially in those days, I had a large sense of empathy and giving the benefit of the doubt towards the dominant culture and population and even sense of coming to their defense because that was where I came from. That was my family, that was my community, that was my friend. But I was also dealing with and coming to grips with racism and systemic racism and my experiences and it was a work in progress, I suppose you can say. In that first group, it would be mostly Black people as members of those groups, and that would show up to the meetings that we would have. But every once in a while, there would be a couple of white people there. Either they would be the girlfriends or boyfriends of some of the members, or just people that were interested and wanted to come and take part and feel a part of that community. But those people always ended up in positions of leadership. They would come in and then assert themselves, take positions, and they really want to be involved. And when that would happen, members of that community would be hostile towards them. And I remember that stood out to me as, come on, Black people, like we got to be nicer to our allies. But what was happening was they weren't coming in and listening. They were coming in and taking over the narrative, essentially trying to be that white savior. I was having a discussion the other day where people talk about, you know, the only way we're going to go ahead is if we have forums where people obey the rules, don't call people this or that. This idea that in order for us to get help, we have to be on our best behavior comes across as a kind of tone policing and we often are not given the space to actually express fully what we're going through and we need that space to be able to be emotional if it comes out in anger we need space to do that sadness without being seen as though expressing that is somehow makes our argument less valid one of the things allies can do better is always remember the perspective of the person that they're supposed to be supporting. Instead of looking at it like a white person who never gets racism thrown at me, who never has to walk away from a job interview wondering, am I not going to get this because I'm white? As somebody who doesn't experience that all the time, or at least frequently or at all, I should not come at the interaction by saying, this is rare because I never see it as a white person. And so... I need to now question my black friend and say, why do you think this is racist? You don't need to think this is racist. It's not always about race. Instead of being sympathetic to that and saying, I can see why you'd wonder that. That's true. Like, why isn't that the instinct to be like, wow, yeah. I didn't, it didn't even occur to me. But uh, damn, yeah, I can, now I could see it now that you pointed it out to me. But no, they need to gaslight you. Um, they also need to defend and explain why they did the thing they did which I also think is not necessary. They need to say that the intent was not there. And again, I keep saying, you know, that it's about impact, not intent, but they're more interested in exonerating themselves than they are of actually dealing with the actual injury that you are 
facing at the time. It's almost like you're there on the ground in pain, bleeding, and instead of fixing your whatever's broken or what's hurt, they stand there saying, well, you know, I didn't really mean to do that. Let me explain yeah. what, and at that time, this is not helping you because it's back to centering them and you don't really get that support. And when that's happening all the time, it it takes a lot of your energy out. It's that like you're always now being drawn into a debate as to, well, was that intentional or not? And were there other factors that led to this and that weren't the person's fault? And that really isn't the kind of conversation that you want. You just want people to understand what you're going through plain and simple and see what they can do to help it if there's anything they can do or maybe what they can do is just to listen and to emphasize and I said for a lot of people even very big allies that in knee jerk is to say well you know I didn't mean that or here's my explanation it's very rarely ever that immediately as you bring the thing up that the response is oh I'm so sorry or oh now I see it or Yes, I can see how you would look at it like that. There's no getting into your position trying to see it from that way. I find that that is a rare thing. When you're coming from the dominant culture, you have a very individualistic way of perceiving your, your own culture. I've always thought of myself as a black person or a brown person or a person of color, like somebody that's got to be defined by my skin somehow, because that's how I've always been defined, you know, since as early as I can remember. But I don't think a white person wakes up thinking I'm white. You know what I mean? Or uh, walks into a store thinking like, oh boy, I'm in an uncomfortable neighborhood for my skin. Because of individualistic ways of thinking, you kind of center yourself. Like You're the hero in your own narrative. When you start to develop empathy for marginalized communities, if you develop some a sense of empathy for the Black community, you might feel like, oh, well, now I'm seeing things that I haven't seen before, and now I see it. Well, now I want to go and save them. And then you have the white hero that comes out, and that person ends up doing more damage than good in the long run, too. So decenter yourself. Don't go in as a hero. Go in as somebody who's there to learn and to observe. Allyship is not an identity. It's a temporary badge given by the oppressed. There is a feeling among some of the allies that there must be some point where they get to some sort of ally gold medal or some kind of level where no other allyship is needed because they have reached that point. Yeah, it's like a badge you earn in the Boy Scouts. You do it once and you get your badge and then you're set. You don't ever have to think about that again, you know? They're thinking about everything in terms of virtue ethics, where it's just like, well, I intended some good things. So the fact that it didn't go that way is just not something we should ever bring up or talk about. All that matters is that I intended to be an ally. Yeah, they kind of want to be an ally on their own terms, right? I want to do yeah. what I want to do, and I just want it to be accepted as good because I intended as good. If you come to me and your right arm is broken and I start bandaging your left arm, and you're like, Tracy, that's not the arm that's broken. If you want to help, my right arm is what needs to be set, not the well, left Fine, arm. I won't do anything then. Right, and me yeah. saying, oh, okay, so tell me, you know, why don't you just criticize me for trying to help? And why should I even try to help you? Because clearly I can't do anything right. Instead yeah. of saying, oh, okay, wait a minute. So I'm bandaging the wrong arm. Which arm's broken and what do I need to do? Just listen to people. How hard is this to just listen? 
they want to get to that point, just tell them what to do. And if they do all those things, they'll be there. You can be an ally today and a presser tomorrow. Allyship is really very temporary in the situation. And if you've done one good thing today, you know, you have to try to do it the next day because you can't criticize me today because yesterday I did well. Yeah, yesterday you did well. But each day is another day and we deal with this thing every day. So you have to be in this for every day and you must not see it as a favor to us. Society needs it to do better. I mean, the other day, someone from the white community, she was, you know, being an ally, trying to ask how she could help. But she ended off by saying, I'm sorry about the racism that you have to deal with. And I thought, you know, that should be, I'm sorry for the racism that this society has in it. I think the more people see racism as something that happens to black people or, you know, other discrimination as only affecting that particular group and not as something that society needs to change, we're not going to get too far because then people think that, well, it's only a problem for us and we have to deal with it. No, it is it's something that everybody needs to be a part of and needs to see themselves as having a responsibility to be a good ally you have to be the microphone but not grab the microphone and I, I thought that that was a really good way of putting it for ally that you're not there to come in to tell us what we need to do or to give us the answers we're the ones in a better position to have them what you can do is give us more of a platform increase our voices push us out there more if you have a platform give us a little bit like what Tracy's doing here we talk about dominant culture and we talk about those biases. Allies are constantly telling us that we need to change, telling us how we need to act to change cis hetero people's minds about us. And I get this even from gay white men. I had a meeting one time and I was kind of complaining about being talked over by cis hetero people. And I'm like, why is this person even talking? And the person's like, well, we need allies. And you know, it's like, yeah, we do need those things. But if you're going to come into my space and make it about you, then I don't need you. The problem is having allies tell us how we need to change to change other people's minds about us instead of actually telling other people that they need to change what they believe about us or how they treat us. We need allies that are going to center our voices more on issues that impact us. I'm lucky that I'm in a situation where I've got a few people around me that center, but I'm constantly, even with cis queer people. Having someone recently, are you sure you're not just projecting your own insecurities as a trans person on all of these people? And then me having to spend the next 30 to 45 minutes unpacking all of that and explaining to them why I'm not. And then them looking around the next day and then seeing it all do the hard work, or I had to do the hard work of lifting back that veil. There was one thing that happened during Black History Month. A situation where allyship was what they were intended, but it's not how it turned out. The library here, Calgary Public Library, they had a very good Facebook for Black History Month. That was good support. But then, as often happens with these things, when you have unmoderated or not so well moderated comment space, people can say whatever they want to say there. And what starts out as an allyship ends up being actually a marginalization because you are allowing whoever is there to say whatever they want to say. People supporting us and then the comment section being various versions of why don't we have a white history month. And those are the kind of things that, again, is erasing that difference of our experiences and recognizing that our experience has been one of dehumanization because of the color of our skin. And you can't just simply reverse that and say the power of the dominant people need the same. 
persons who are allies don't realize how much that is damaging and think that oh we should be able to enter into debates or discussions on these issues because hey you have a platform so do they and they don't realize the emotional impact the emotional labor that comes from you going into space just to try to enjoy it or to have some pride to then have to be drawn into having to defend why Black History Month is needed or why it's not the legal system isn't quite working in your favor whatever that is the idea that whenever we get with allies that are supporting us we always have this second aspect that maybe we're going to be drawn into something where we have to discuss why it's necessary or why we're doing what we're doing and then often at the end somebody may say yeah you really did well in explaining that or it's so good we now understand this but they don't realize just how much that takes out of you each time and i think allies need to recognize that and to not put us in spaces even though they have us at the table or they have us in some sort of forum where we have to continually be defending or continually drawn into discussions where we have to explain to people things one of the first things i would like to see is acknowledgement of that and really respecting our time respecting our labor and allowing us to be safe when we are in these areas where they want to get the benefit of our experience. If we say, hey, these things are happening, look around, because they probably are happening. I would say extrapolates to Black people, brown people, cis women, the Me Too movement, believing women when women say we're being sexually assaulted or harassed, having straight white guys saying, well, I need video footage of you being sexually harassed right? To believe you. This seems absurd to me. There's so many people who call themselves allies that have that same burden of proof and it's so high. That's something you could never actually prove to them. Privilege is a gift. Cis allies need to understand how being trans and a cis supremacy society robs us of experiences that cis people take for granted. In all the areas that I'm privileged, it could be really easy for me to inadvertently hurt somebody from another marginalized community because I'm not aware of what their experiences is. I'm not aware of the things that could be triggering to them. So I'm insensitive to it until I become aware of it and make a concerted effort to elevate the weight of the kind of things that hurt them in my own mind so that I can become sensitive to it. It's not just a matter of following a set of guidelines or rules or I'm not supposed to say this or that, so that it hurts me when I hear somebody else do it too, because it, it hurts me to know that my friend is being hurt or that people of this community is being hurt. Learn about the things that hurt that community, even if you don't understand it. You know, use that to help trigger your empathy and, and help you connect more, you know, learn and adjust. When you're dealing with the marginalized community, you're dealing with people who have experiences that you're not going to have. People that perceive the world around them is going to be shaped by what their experiences are. And you don't have those. You can't assume the reasons. And you might be looking at it from the outside, looking at the situation and feel like, okay, well, I can draw a conclusion about that based on what I know, but that could be worthless. That projection can cause people to dismiss you. Whereas if somebody is making a legitimate request to be considered or validated in a certain way, and you look at it from a person who doesn't get hurt by the things that that community is getting hurt by, and be like, well, I don't think that's an important enough thing to worry about, so I dismiss it. And that's projecting your privilege onto an underprivileged group of people. That's very dangerous, you know. Okay, an example of how that plays out is Facebook, their algorithms and their moderators. 
like black people and trans people, LGBTQ people and people that are allies to those communities are finding that those algorithms and the type of moderating that's being done is in the favor of the privileged dominant culture where uh, women criticizing men are having their posts removed, they're getting their accounts suspended, then men are getting away with carrying on with sexist things and that are kind of normalized still, and their content is not getting moderated. Black people complaining about racism are getting moderated, and the people making racist statements aren't on the same level. That's a projection. If I flag something that is very clearly racist and the algorithm doesn't catch it, so I flag it, they have somebody look at it and they're like, yeah, that's that's fine. That doesn't go against our community standards. When technically it does, but they're reading it in a different way. They're projecting their mind on it. They're just like, no, that's not offensive. You know, it doesn't come across as hate speech. When we first started having discussions about whether or not being gay was a mental illness in the, like, the psychological community in the 50s and 60s, the thing that blew people away was that gay people started showing up and saying, hey, we have ideas about ourselves, you know, that's not being reflected in the research at all. And the starting point was just to assume that gay people were mentally ill. And there was never any real discussion before in the psychological community. People was just sort of assumed when you start hearing from anybody who wants to be critical of quote unquote the gay lifestyle, they're always saying, well, the changes in the psychological community, it wasn't based on real research. It was just political. And what they really mean there is that gay people had a say. Queer people came in and had a say on how this research was done and how things were handled. To them, the only way you could have good, solid, consistent research about the subject was just straight people analyzing it. Gay people weren't allowed to have any input on their own existence. This is one that I heard on one of Tracy's podcasts about recognizing marginalized people as having a second language. People think that, oh, well, it's good for us to have that different perspective, but we don't understand them. But in truth, because we've lived, as you said, Joseph, you know, we've lived, and certainly maybe you more, in a sense, than me, and maybe more directly, in this dominant white society for a long time. And we understand what their position is, because we have to understand that language just to survive. So it's not like we don't know what they're coming with. So when we come to the table, we are coming with both. We are coming with understanding their side and our side. But they don't have the two languages because they naturally don't need to understand our situation to survive. They don't have to give us their perspective in these discussions. Just listen. Learning to understand another culture and what they deal with sufficiently to be able to predict before something harmful happens that this would be harmful to this person. That's the second language David's talking about, where the more I learn that other language, the more I'm able to head off things that might be problematic because I'll be more informed about that community and I'll know this is hurtful because of this particular history with them or this is a problem because they constantly deal with this particular form of oppression and so I don't want to do something that would be reminiscent of that. So cultural sensitivity is very important in being able to head off harm before it happens so that you don't end up having to apologize. You can mm -hmm. actually do better before you do something worse. I got banned on Facebook for saying this, but I'm going to just say it. I'm going to make a lot of people mad at me. Let's see what you have to say and we'll see if it makes the final cut. Okay. <laughs> I have a saying, and I say it around my friends a lot, who are cis, and they understand what I mean by it. But I always say, cis people are fucking cowards. And what I mean by that is that even in LGBTQ spaces, we know people who are quiet, 
I have a friend at work. He's a gay man. And obviously he doesn't owe anyone disclosure. I want to put that out there. But he was so afraid of how him being gay was going to impact his job. He didn't come out at work. But here was people in the closet who started coming out after I came out. And we're sitting here all, at least myself as a trans person. When you're trans and you come out, there's no going back on the closet. My boyfriend and I had this conversation. He's bi. And he's like, if the government starts sending queer people to concentration camps like they did in World War II, he can blend in with society because he's a white man. And he's like, there's no like going back in the closet for you. And when I say these people are cowards, I mean, they're always the people who are telling me I should just be a little nicer or I should be a little sweeter. I should be quiet and don't upset the status quo. And it's my fault if I point something out and a straight person gets upset about it. It's that fear of being judged. That fear. And obviously it doesn't track to everyone. There's a reason for the word fragility. That's what you're describing. As somebody that has an intersectional existence with areas of privilege and areas of not privilege, I think those areas where I have privilege, I can afford to be resilient rather than be fragile. When you get upset with me as a cis person, then I need to be able to take that hit because I understand that that hit is coming from somebody who deals with oppression every day in that same society where I am privileged as a result of that same oppressive system. So the system oppressing you privileges me. I exploit Mm -hmm. your pain to my benefit, whether I want to or not. As a result, when you are upset about that, I need to be understanding, not defensive. You would be surprised how many people were actually really nice to me by themselves, but you put them in front of other people and instantly they don't know you. You're not their friend or you're going on a date with someone and you go to like just your neighborhood bar, people there know you, but it's not a queer bar and you go on a date and the person is standoffish, sits at the other side of a long table from you and talks to you like you're an acquaintance, like you went to get a drink after work or something. And then you go down to the neighborhood instantly. Oh, now we're on a date date. And then also trying to keep those friends and try to get them to not be as afraid to be your friend or to be on a date with you. Or to just, you know, stand up for you. Yeah, stand up for me or treat me like a human being. Exactly. If you're going to be an ally, I don't need cowards. If somebody wants to support you, they need not treat you like you're a shameful thing. Yeah. And I don't think that's too much to ask. It really shouldn't be. If somebody feels like that's too much to ask, they need to really think about what they expect other people to accept as treatment. Maybe I'm just trying to be too nice. You get trained almost to be that nice. You get so threatened by these people who say they're allies, but then the moment that you lash out because you're angry at being oppressed, which is completely understandable, they act like that's the worst thing in the world, or like they shouldn't have to be supportive of your basic human existence anymore, just because you got frustrated at being oppressed. Yeah, I'm going to dig a little bit. I try not use names or businesses names or anything. But when I kind of came out, I talked to someone, I'm going to give them the credit after our second conversation. But I brought up the point, would y'all be willing to write a letter or put something out that says, hey, these are our values and we're not going to tolerate bigotry at our gym. And they took that as offensive. They took it as, oh, why, you think we're going to disrespect you or something? 
and the defensiveness kind of was like, I'll give it a shot. But obviously, this isn't a conversation they want to have. They took it personal that I suggested that they put it out there that these are their values. Right. And lo and behold, my whole concerns about how I was going to get treated came to fruition. And then they had the gall to come back at me and be like, well, you said something negative and he leaves the conversation. Well, this is my job. And like, Let me stop you there. I, in tears, gave this long explanation of all the things that I've been going through because I, I don't share everything on social media. I'm open, but I try to be graceful, not throwing people under the bus. After sharing everything, their voices changed. I don't think they've realized all the shit that I'd been through there. To their credit, they owned it. As business owners, you can't be reactive to things. You have to be proactive. You have to get out in front of these things. It should not have happened right. in the first place. The owner had to fire one of his friends for sexually harassing one of the students who was a woman. And so they're at a cross points where they're like, we need to put something out. These are what's expected from our coaches. And this is what's expected for our community. If you're going to be a member at our gym. They owned it, and the guy who got defensive the first time said, you know what, that's on me. I fucked up. And they're working on trying to write something to just essentially, hey, we want to make sure this is a safe place for everyone. And this kind of is part of the what can allies do better. Waving a pride flag or making a big public statement about LGBTQ plus rights and people, and you're welcome here, isn't about giving me warm, fuzzy feelings it's about signaling to this douchebag over here who's going to harass me or threaten me or try to drive me out in some way that that's not acceptable. It looks like you're parading a certain person around or you're parading a certain demographic around or you're saying, hey, Black Lives Matter or believe women. What you're basically saying is that if you're viewing all of this as just simple virtue signaling, your heart's yeah. not in the right space. You should not be too cowardly to put your values down on paper and put them where your mouth is. If it is your value that the trans person at the gym is not going to be harassed, then you should be able to write that up and post it. And if you are a cis and hetero person, if you're in a position of privilege, it's about using your privilege to support other people. Even as something simple as putting the equal sticker in the back of your car. And it's actually a good quick lesson. You get to see real fast how queer people get to live. If you are a cis and hetero and you want to see how we feel for a little bit, fly that flag somewhere and look at the skulls you'll get, the nervousness and the just the awkwardness and the treating you like you're a monster. If you're not willing to fly that flag and get those nasty looks, then you're not an ally. I can't speak for everyone, but I definitely don't need you and I don't want you. My earliest experience has been being a minority and knowing that I'm different, realizing that I'm experiencing certain kind of discrimination and that my mom is and the rare other person that looks like me that I come across is also experiencing it. It's like being indoctrinated against yourself to come up in a community like that. Some of the earliest memories that I have that I've learned in order to survive those kind of environments is that I can't make them feel uncomfortable about race more than they already do. Just the sight of me walking into a room with my little afro or something like that might have made people uncomfortable. Don't make people feel uncomfortable about racism. Don't make them feel that they have privilege in, in any way because the dominant culture doesn't tolerate that discomfort. Somebody coined the term uh, white fragility. That fragility is a way of shutting down the dialogue that's kind of ingrained in the dominant culture. And I think people, even who are intending to be allies, have that instinct. Learn how to tolerate this company. Learn how to be in the presence of it. 
as a black person being in a room full of white people there's a lot of things a lot of discomfort that i have to feel there's a lot of racism in some cases that i have to feel like overt and microaggressions i need to navigate those environments and absorb these hits all the time the least an ally can do is feel a fraction of that in order to um, get the nugget of what's going to come from being around dialogue that makes them uncomfortable the flip side of white fragility is white resiliency so if anybody would want more information on how to do better and overcome that sense of fragility and that discomfort look up white resiliency and you will find information on that this is often something, you know, well, he didn't say anything bad or she didn't say anything bad about it or they didn't say anything bad about it. So it must be okay. A lot of times because of the power structure in society, it's very risky for any of us to speak out against racism. It really takes a lot even to get to the point where I do it now for a fair amount. It does take a lot. And so our silence doesn't mean consent. And sometimes you may actually have to go out there and get our views on something and try to create an environment where we can actually be honest and not feel that if we are honest that someone's going to get down on us so create that uh, and reassure us that there's no risk in being honest that we're not going to get that pushback do as much as you can to make it a situation where we can be honest because the more honest we are the more you're going to learn and the more you're going to realize how to do better i try to set up on my spaces what is a brave space for oppressors and a safe space for the oppressed so if you're in the oppressed position in a particular issue or topic or situation or context, you have the right to be frustrated and express that frustration. If you are the oppressor in that situation, you have to accept that and you have to be cordial to the person regardless of how much hostility comes your way. I expect people to understand when they are in a power position and not pretend like they're being harmed and hurt, they need to accept their role in the oppression and understand why somebody's frustrated with them. Meanwhile, the person who is frustrated gets to be frustrated because they are being harmed and they get to talk about that. And if they're angry about it, that's absolutely fair. It's absolutely reasonable and it's acceptable on my spaces. People need to be very aware in my spaces of when they are an oppressor and when they are oppressed. What we've been talking about a little bit here is the different roles. I think, Joseph, you talked specifically about the times when you feel that male privilege might be something that you're experiencing, and then other times you're experiencing racial oppression. Um, Intersectionality um, is what we're talking about. But if you're in an oppressed situation, you're being oppressed. It's not like it comes and goes. It's happening all the time. When you're oppressing people, that's happening all the time, too. It's not just something that I do sometimes. If I'm benefiting from other people, disenfranchisement in the society, that benefit isn't just something that happens at three o'clock on Saturday afternoon. I'm benefiting all the time from that oppression. That's how the society is. That's what systemic is. A lot of people who identify as an ally because they haven't really thought it through so much. They don't see it as that. They see it as like, okay, well, I'm somebody that supports this community, so I'm an ally to that community. But it's a little bit more active than that. Some people who see themselves as just plain not racist. 
would consider themselves allies too, not seeing themselves as hostile towards marginalized communities. That, I think, is a big one too. You know, that it's not enough to try to not be racist and sort of think, well, if I don't do anything bad, that I'm okay. But really, it takes intent to do these things. It has to be sort of everyday practice to do it and to do all the things that you're talking about, listening and decentering and, and those kinds of things. I have a neighbor who's a white lady. She likes black people. She likes black culture. When I moved in, she got a little too excited about me being here. But she's somebody who we're on friendly terms, but she commits a lot of microaggressions. She's done things like touch my hair without permission and actually even asked. And I said no, and then went and touched it anyway, because she couldn't imagine that it was serious to say no. Over the years of living here, she's one of the people that I've been a little bit harder on with this kind of thing because she's my neighbor and I have to share space with her. We see each other outside in the parking lot at the grocery store, you know. I've been a little more blunt with her on, uh, no, I, I'm not having that because this is my home and there's certain things I just don't want to deal with. It's never gone over well. When she met my mother, she put on this terrible fake Caribbean accent because she knows my mom's Bajan. So she put on this kind of, you mentioned cool runnings earlier. Like it was yeah. the accent sound like that actor Dougie Doug trying to do a Jamaican yeah, accent. Oh my goodness, that was and really good. Uh, mom and I were just standing there like, what is this woman doing? And she kept trying to say it to me, she's like, oh, Bajan. Like when I make some Caribbean food, so put on the accent. And I told her, I said, I really don't like when you do that. And I really appreciate you never doing that to my mother again. She's like, oh, but your mom said she loves me. I'm like, yeah, my mom believes in Jesus. She loves everybody. But it doesn't mean that she likes you coming in her face and doing that. The last interaction I had with her, I had to call her out on something. I didn't even call her out. The things that I called her out for, I've never succeeded at getting her to understand why it's problematic. So the best of my ability, I explain it and it never gets understood. So she kind of feels now that she's on eggshells when she's around me. So she's struggling with, she doesn't have the self-control to stop herself from doing something problematic, but she doesn't have the understanding to avoid doing it. I started getting dreadlocks a couple months ago in the early phases. It's kind of an awkward look. She caught me outside wiping the snow from my car and she said, oh, like, I, I love your hair. Like, are those dreads? And that's <laughs> fine. And she's like, oh, great. And we talked a little bit more. And then she said, uh, are you a Rasta? She didn't even say it right. She's like, are you a, a Rasti? For those that don't know, so Rastafarianism is a religion. To a lot of members of that religion, having uh, dreadlocks is, is a, it has religious significance to a lot of the members. So for her, she associated with Bob Marley and was like, yeah, are, are, you, are you a Rastian? And I said, no, I'm not a Rastafarian. I made the mistake of asking, well, why did you ask? And she said, well, you know, like most people with dreadlocks are Rastis. <laughs> wow. And I said, no, actually, most people with dreadlocks aren't. But, you know, I explained that it does have religious significance in that community. And then I proceeded to just continue wiping my car because when it starts to go that direction, I usually try to get on my way. And she projected on me because I didn't roll my eyes. I didn't say anything in retort. I didn't have, as far as I'm aware, body language that communicated that I was bothered. But because of all our previous interactions, she was expecting something. She said, come on. All I asked was, is if you're a Rasta, like, don't take it that way. Oh, wow. She got... <laughs> and I'm like, take it what way? And she came at me for it. Basically, her discomfort about talking about racial things with me, she projected that I had a reaction that I didn't even have. And then we had a big blowout about it. And she said, I can't even believe you would do this. You know, like, I'm an ally. Why would I be always trying to hurt you? And I said, you're not an ally. I'm the one that lets you know if you're being an ally or not. I don't think you're always trying to hurt me. I think that you hurt me unintentionally all the time. And that's the problem. When I try to call you out on it, you're not ready to hear it. And that was the last interaction we had about that. But there's somebody who, in her mind, she was an ally because she's not anti-Black. 
there was another situation where this was somebody who's uh, I considered a pretty good friend around this time too. This person also considered themselves an ally. And in the wake of George Floyd, his murder, I was posting a lot on my Facebook page, which I don't do so much anymore. But back then I was venting out a lot of my feelings on my page, using my page as a platform to kind of call out some things. I noticed like because I have black family and white family, there's two communities that I'm seeing interacting in response to the news. And I see in the black community, people are checking up on each other. They're posting things, trying to like support the community because all the tension and protests and everything that was happening, like we were all feeling it pretty strong. It's a very helpless feeling. I made a point of saying like my white friends and family, like when I look at their pages and their platforms, you wouldn't even know that we existed. So this one friend, she was getting all of these in her feed and she was reading them, but she wasn't responding to any of them, but I guess it was showing up for her. So then at some point she decided that, okay, well, my friend here is like complaining that white people aren't doing enough and stuff. So I'm going to start sharing stuff. But she started sharing problematic things. She doesn't understand what's going on enough that she thinks she's posting things that's helping and she's posting things that's problematic. So then I would call her out on it and say, uh, oh boy, like all lives matter. This is why that's problematic. I would kind of address some of those. I won't go into the details of all that. But her response to that was to get really offended to, again, once say, like, I don't know why you would treat an ally that way. This is how you treat your enemies. And then to pretty much say, like, you're so inconsistent. You're telling us that we're not doing enough. And then when we do something, you slap us on the wrist for it. Make up your mind. It was a, a very, like, frustrated tone based on ignorance about how to be an ally. And it ended with, if you're just going to be like that and abuse us this way, then maybe we're just going to revoke our allyship. I'm just going to ignore this topic altogether because you guys aren't appreciating me for what I'm doing. <laughs> That's so amazing that you said that because I actually got that same, I don't want to be slapped on the rest comment, I think about a year ago as well, with a lady who, I know, again, was a friend. And it was, if I'm not a good enough ally for you, then perhaps this friendship has run its course. I could not believe that a simple call out would mean the end of a friendship. If I can't meet your standards, I guess I'm out. (laughs) It's just incredible to me how the whole thing with ally is you are there for the person. But yeah, it's conditional a lot of times. Yeah, but I think uh, allyship is something that, uh, you know, I wouldn't even look at it as a title or a badge of honor, but rather something that you're constantly striving for and realize that as long as you have privilege, you're most likely falling short of qualifying as an ally at some point. But if you keep on making the effort to learn about the community that you're trying to be an ally to, to adjust your behavior and actions based on what you're learning, sensitize yourself to them, you'll be doing the right thing. Never just consider yourself an ally. So I try to be an ally too. I usually, I never say I'm your ally. I say I'm doing my best and I'm striving to be an ally towards the community. And it's going to be an endless work in progress, but I always hope to be moving steps forward and never backward. People have to ask themselves what they're in it for. If I'm in it to build a better society, to build a more equitable society, to help end oppression across the board, then personal treatment of me isn't going to affect that. But if I'm in it to be treated well and to get cookies, right? Like I'm here for the cookies. If there's no cookies, I'm going home. And that's kind of what's being described there, right? You're in this situation because you're being exploited for my benefit as a white person. So I'm exploiting a system that is oppressing people. And I'm upset that they're not thanking me for trying to undo that mess. People do not get a thank you and a cookie for cleaning up their own mess. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But that, but some are really in it for that in a big, big way. 
It's like decentering the issue and centering it on me as the white person and my efforts. It's not about what you deal with in the oppression of a community anymore. It's all about me. And am I being treated right? And am I being appreciated? And am I? And it's like, can you just do something that's not about you? It's very triggering to some people. Yeah, it seems simple, but it, they just don't seem to be able to do it. Some people, the, the society has told them so much that it's all about them. They can't even be out of that center for a minute. It's something that has to change. I mean, I don't apologize for telling people that. Yeah, it, it's not about you. We have to decenter the oppressor group. It really, that's the big, big thing. I've seen gatekeeping in social life. People that like to keep their crew of friends white or majority white to sports, to people that are being exclusive of who they're selecting for their teams, who they're going to promote and put some effort into uh, developing their skills, who they think is worth doing that to. I've experienced that in music. The last high school I went to was a predominantly white high school, and they would put on pretty elaborate musical productions. They used to do Gilbert and Sullivan productions. What are they called? Operettas. So it's not quite an opera, but there's operatic singing involved, but then there's also dialogue. So it's like a play, and they're funny little uh, little shows, but they have a lot of music in it and a lot of singing and a lot of roles. You know, in high school, you have people that get involved in those things that are good singers. You have a handful of those, and then the majority of people are just average singers that aren't that great or aren't that good. Not to say that I'm a, a great singer of any sort, but I always tried to aim for some roles in those things. That's the kind of production that I was really interested in being involved, and I put a lot of effort into learning how to sing the roles and to audition for all these parts and I noticed that if it was going to be a black person or a visible minority at all they would have to be amazing like professional quality singer in order to get any kind of role of significance otherwise it was going to go to white kids who either couldn't sing on key at all or can barely carry a note every one of these kind of things where like I would notice that kind of happening there was no way to really call it out you just be suspicious of it because you just see like okay every black person that tried to go for this role every person of color that's also interested in this they're going they're, some of them are killing it and then they're not getting the call back you wonder about it it's a kind of thing that if you're uh, black in a predominantly white society, you're always leaving a situation asking these kind of questions. And you may be uh, very qualified for a job and you go through the interview process and you get the sense that you impress them and there's not a lot of candidates to compete with you and you don't get the call back. If you're a person of color, you're kind of wondering, could that have been because of race? And if it was, there's never really a way to catch that and correct it. I have another friend who's a marginalized person, marginalized in one way and privileged in another way because it's a person who's white, but she's she's a trans woman. She's trying to be an ally to me as well as I'm trying to be an ally to her. One of the areas she's struggling with, she's still, you know, she's still in a in a certain place in her development as someone who's learning how to be an ally to another community while she's also in the position of being a marginalized person herself. Sometimes makes some mistakes that can be triggering to me. One of the things is to kind of talk about areas in which they benefit from privilege about like there, there's some excuses being made for carrying on with certain kinds of activities and stuff like that i ended up just using tracy's podcast and her platform and facebook page as an example of like if you want to really be an ally to the community that you benefit from exploiting to a degree look at what tracy does and i think tracy you're probably the first and only person i've ever known white person cis person head person to actually do what you do you have some notoriety from your experiences in the, the atheist community in the past that has uh, provided you an audience. And you've ceded that space to let marginalized voices use your platform and use your audience. And that's something that 
I think that's an incredible example of how to be an ally that most people wouldn't be willing to do. Most people would be in the position of having an audience that you have, or, or you know, would probably try to build that audience and self-promote and make a living off of doing that or something. But you know, you're letting other people use it and you're elevating other people's voices. Be nice to see more of that from more people. I heard this great TED talk from a trans woman who used to present as a male CEO. And one of the things that she had said was, it's not enough to try to create opportunities for women. Empowered men need to step down and give up their opportunities for women. Mm -hmm. I remember talking to David, we were looking at a particular conference platform that was about diversity. I mean, the conference wasn't about diversity, but the platform was promoted as diverse. And there were like a couple people who weren't white. There were a few women. And I said to David, imagine the bold step if that entire lineup was not white and not male. I was involved in that conversation too. Yeah. I mean, wouldn't that be something? <laughs> that would be amazing. That would really show that they were serious about diversity. As you said, giving it up. Imagine the learning that would come from that a conference like that you would learn so much and get so much of a benefit we have those kind of spaces but then they are seen as well those are for black people or for trans people and then the the mainstream don't come to it you know so say if it's women of color then why do i need to be there but if we can actually get some of these spaces with these speakers with the mainstream listening wow it would make a tremendous difference. It would be a big start, but not even that. I can't. I can see that happening. You know, you'd have to like bait and switch people to get. It. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because because they would say some people would not turn up. They'd be afraid of the attendance. I mean, you'd mention about what Tracy does. The thing is that that is not the audience. You know, if you're looking at the numbers, you know, if you are building on the audience that you had from before in the atheist community, that would probably be a bigger in terms of numbers more. But you know, when you do something like this you have to realize it might be fewer but it can be more important even though there might be fewer people listening because those people listening are learning something that really makes a difference and i would think you know a conference like that might have less people but the people who were there would have such an amazing experience i think it could at least begin to make that difference i would love to challenge them and i would love that to happen i hope that people see that i'd love to put it out there I would say if the racist institution, which is the NFL, could actually do that at a Super Bowl halftime and put almost <laughs> only black people up on the stage, except for one, yeah. then I think some people in the atheist community could probably uh, pull something like that off. <laughs> oh, okay, maybe that's the challenge, you know, say be like the NFL, although the whole NFL, you know, the outlaw yeah. that The bar has been raised, even if it's been raised <laughs> by the devil. If they could just do it for like one year. Yeah, even just one year. Yeah. Forever, but just to say, we're making a point this year about diversity so we're going to do an entire panel of marginalization just to platform those voices i just think it would be awesome it would be yeah, that would be amazing fun. but you know yeah, i be. think anybody trying to suggest that unless like those institutions really were interested in diversity and not just advertising themselves as such they probably wouldn't go for it and you'd learn very quickly i guess they'd have to face being exposed that no that's not what they want they would call that racist and all that you know we that want to end racism are, are actually doing our own racism on our side that we are being hypocritical. <laughs> I'm going to have to put that link in for that skit on dun-dun-dun. Reverse <laughs> racism. Reverse racism. <laughs> yes. Yes, yes, yes. I, yeah, I know they just call it racism, but yes, it is.
Yeah, they took out the reverse now. Because no, and they, they actually say that, you know, racism is both is both ways now. And that's where that fear, um, the FAIR that you put out there, what was it? Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. But they define racism as <laughs> as going both ways. A lot of the criticism I saw of the Super Bowl halftime show was people saying it's racist. Yes, that's what and, I mean. And they were saying that because they were saying, oh, there's no diversity, there's a lack of diversity on that stage. It's, it's mainly black people out there. A lot of people were saying they didn't even recognize Eminem as a white person. They said there was not a single white person on the stage. That's racist. How How is that not racist? If white people did that, like, yeah. people, black people would freak out. And then it's kind of like, how many Super Bowls have there been? <laughs> right. Yeah. How many of them didn't have a black people? Like, you know, most of them, like 80%? Or- exactly, yeah. 90%? <laughs> when you're the default, you don't think of it. You don't think of like 20 white people on stage as, oh, it's only white people. But if you see 20 black people on stage, it's like, well, don't they want to shake it up a little bit and add some other right, right. diversity? Because you can't have something unless white people are included. Yeah. I think that's what it comes down to. Is, you know, the white person is the first person there and then we build diversity around that. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> For this episode of At Home in My Head, exploring life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay safe, be well, and never stop exploring.